Well, once again, a very, very warm welcome to you all. If you are new to our church, a special welcome. My name is Martin. I'm one of the pastors here at, uh, at Christ Church. We really are delighted that you could join us this, uh, this beautiful autumn Sunday morning. So thank you for being here with us. We're turning to Luke chapter 23. As you know, we are working through some passages in Luke's gospel as we come up to Easter last uh, Sunday. You may remember that Raphael looked at Luke 22, where we looked at uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, this morning we're having a look at Luke chapter 23, 32 to 43, where we have the crucifixion of Jesus. Then next Friday, Good Friday, we'll be looking at the death of Jesus. And of course, on Easter Sunday, we'll be looking at the resurrection of Jesus. Penny's going to read for us Luke 23, 32 to 43. Luke 23, 32 to 43. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he, said to, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Just before I pray as we come to God's word, if you do have a small baby or child with you, it's going to be a great help to all of us and to me if you can slip into the cry room. It's right next to us here. There's audio visual so that you can hear and watch the sermon uh, in comfort. And uh, if you are a nursing mother, we do have the school library. So immediately on my left in A block, there's a school library and there is place for any nursing mothers. And do just check your cell phones. Just uh, have a look at your cell phone. Just take it out of your bag. See that it is on silent and you are not the person who has their cell phone going off. So there we go. All right, let's... uh, Don't you get irritated when... Yeah, well, anyway, there we go. (laughs) I get irritated. We should have a Roydenfrost holiday fund so that if your cell phone goes off during a sermon, you have to put 500 rand. 500 rand, Royden? 1,000 rand. Royden says 1,000 rand into the Roydenfrost holiday fund. That'll teach you. All right, let's pray as we come to God's word. 
Father, we thank you so much for this morning as we witnessed families and adults express their express publicly their faith in Christ and uh, visibly and symbolically receive the grace of God, which is free for sinners like us. And Father, we pray that as your people, we may once again look at these old these old passages which is so familiar to many of us and we do pray that they may speak to us in a fresh way and that we may once again recommit ourselves to serve Christ and to live for him because of what he's done for us. Speak to us through your word we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Now it's going to be a great help to me if you do have your Bibles open in front of you. We're going to work through this passage And uh, we're looking at Luke 23 from 32 to 43. And if I was to choose the key verse or verses in the section this morning, I would choose verse 42 and 43. And Jesus is on the cross and one of the criminals says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I think verse 43 is one of the most extraordinary statements that you are going to find in the Bible. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And the reason it's extraordinary is because by instinct, almost all of us believe that there's something you must do to get right with God. That is the general thinking of most people. Most people in our country, most people in our culture, most people in Christendom. Think there is something I must do to put myself right with God. Either I must be good enough for God, or I must be religious enough for God, or my good works need to outweigh my bad works at the very least. It's a kind of a pension plan view of God. Now, when you get to my age, you get very concerned about pension plans, as you can imagine. But a pension plan as you know, works like this. If you pay enough installments, regular installments, over a long period of time, hopefully at the end, you will qualify for a lump sum payout. Now, I think many people think about Christianity like that. If I make enough regular installments of goodness, if I'm good enough, if I'm religious enough, if I pay enough installments over a long enough period of time, hopefully at the end I will get a lump sum payment called heaven. Perhaps that's how you think of Christianity this morning. Well, the message of Easter is that Christianity is not about us being good enough for God. The message of Easter is actually God being gracious enough to forgive us. It's about God inviting us as we are into a relationship with him. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been. So let's have a look at the passage. Two uh, kinds of responses to Jesus in this passage. There's a positive response and a negative response. And we're going to have a look at those two responses. And I'm going to ask you, where are you? What is your response? There's no middle ground. There's either a positive response or a negative response. And at the end of the sermon, I'm going to ask you, where do you stand? What is your response to this same Jesus who died on the cross? But before I do that, let me just go down two side roads. The first is here in the text, and it has to do with prophecies. 
prophecies made in the Old Testament, which are then fulfilled in the New Testament, and particularly fulfilled in Jesus. You see, when things happen and they have been prophesied, you have to ask yourself, the person who made the prophecy, are they speaking the truth? Now, you need to know that there are over 300 prophecies, over 300 prophecies made in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King who is coming. And all 300, over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. They all came true. And many of those prophecies were made like a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And many of them had to do with details. So let's have a look at some of the details in this passage. And I'll show you from the Old Testament how these prophecies made in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. Notice there verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the Sigal, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Then notice verse 35. There's mocking, there's scoffing, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there's a lot of detail here. Turn with me. We'll look at two Old Testament passages. Psalm 22. It's one of the messianic psalms. Psalm 22, where we have prophecies made about what we've just read. Notice Psalm 22. It's a psalm of David. David was the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. And David lived a thousand years, 1000 BC, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And David writes, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? David writes, notice verse 7, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. So you'll notice it's a messianic psalm. These are the words Jesus uses. Jesus would have known these words. So he uses these words from Psalm 22 to express his God-forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice verse 7. You, you have those around him scoffing, mocking, reviling him. Isn't that just what we've read in Luke chapter 23? Have a look at verse, verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Extraordinary what David is saying there. David is saying that when the Messiah comes, he will be encircled by evildoers. And isn't that exactly what we see in Luke 23? We see a robber and a murderer on his left and on his right. David writes, they have pierced my hands and feet. Now, what makes that so extraordinary is that that really could only happen when someone is crucified, which is exactly what happened in Luke 23. What you need to know is that when David wrote this, he wouldn't have known what crucifixion was. 
Crucifixion was only invented or created by the Persians in around about 500, 550 BC, and then it was it was um, it was massively used by the Romans. So when David says that the Messiah, the one who is forsaken, forsaken, that that his hands will be pierced and his feet will be pierced, in a sense, he is writing about something he doesn't know about. He has no idea that that's how the Messiah will come and that's how the Messiah will die. And yet he prophesies, inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, that the death of the Messiah, the forsaken one, will be when there are criminals around him, when his hands and feet are pierced. And then notice verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Isn't that extraordinary, the detail? And that's precisely what happened. Jesus had no control. He had control about what he said on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he had no control as to how he would be killed. He had no control as to who would be with him when he was crucified. He had no control over the fact that they would cast lots for his clothing. And yet that was prophesied a thousand years before his birth. Extraordinary. Do you think it's an accident? Do you think it's chance? Turn to Isaiah 53, that wonderful passage speaking about the substitutionary death of Christ. Isaiah 53. Have a look at verse 5 and 6. Isn't this exactly what Jesus told his disciples would happen to him? He told them what would happen. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced, speaking here of the suffering servant, of the Messiah, the anointed king, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What an extraordinary statement about the substitutionary death of Christ, that he would die in my place, he would die on my behalf. And then notice in verse, in verse, uh, verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressions. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He's numbered with the transgressors. Who were the transgressors? Well, the criminal on his left and the criminal on his right. Josh McDowell wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. In that book, what he does is he takes only eight, there are over 300, he takes only eight prophecies made about Jesus, and David was writing a thousand years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah was writing 700 years before the birth of Christ. Josh McDowell takes eight of the prophecies in the Old Testament made about Jesus, prophecies about which Jesus had no control, And then he applies it to the science of probability. What is the probability that these eight prophecies would come true in one man? And he works out, according to the science of probability, that it's not one in ten or one in a thousand or one in a million. No, it's one in ten with 17 zeros. The chances of these prophecies coming true in one person, the detail coming true in one person, 1,000 years later, is one in a trillion, trillion, trillion. Which means it's completely unlikely that it's coincidental. 
Jesus was expected. He was the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament teaches us. It's a little bit like saying, let me give you a modern-day modern day example. Earlier this week, good news. Uh, we need good news. South Africa qualified for 2024 AFCON. Imagine if you had prophesied a thousand years ago that uh, South Africa would beat, no, South Africa would first draw with Liberia. They give me heart attacks. South Africa would draw with Liberia to all and then beat Liberia 2-1. Imagine prophesying that a thousand years ago. When there was no South Africa, there was no Liberia, there was no Afghan, and no one played soccer. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Second side road. Quickly, have a look at... Someone will say, Martin, it's never quick. Luke chapter 23, verse 44 and 45. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. So... Luke was a historian. He was a very careful historian, very careful about what he included, what he excluded. And he almost matter-of-factly tells us that for three hours there was darkness. It's like today, the beautiful sunshine, autumn day, 12 noon, it goes dark. 3 p.m. it comes back on. And Luke just mentions that. And... uh, A skeptic may well say, well, there we go again. There the Bible is with its supernatural myths. Um, Obviously did not occur. What you need to know is that the first record of this darkness was not by Luke or Matthew or Mark or John. The first record of this darkness was by a pagan Greek historian called Thallus. T-H-A-L-L-U-S, Thallus. And he was writing around about 51, 52 AD, before the Gospels were written. The first record of this darkness was written by a pagan Greek historian who argued that it was caused by a solar eclipse. And then in the first century, you had a historian called Julius Africanus, an African, who argued that Thallus was wrong. This darkness could not have been caused by a solar eclipse because the death of Christ was at the Passover. The Passover uh, occurs when there's a full moon. You can't have a solar eclipse with a full moon. So here you have two historians of antiquity arguing, as it were. Not that it happened, but what was the cause? So when we read this, that there was darkness, it's not as if Luke was just smoking something. No, he's writing what happened. He's a historian. When you read the Gospels, what you are reading here is historical. It's dependable. It's accurate. Every step, every stage is what happened. And we can have, we can have great trust in the Scriptures being authentic, historically authentic, being true, whether you believe it or not. All right, there are two side roads. Let's dig in straight away. Let's have a look at our first response, which is a negative response. You still with me out there? I hope so. Amen. Someone say amen. Amen. Good. Thank you. All right. Still got you. First response, which is obvious here, was a negative response. So notice there verse 35. 
And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. And then you have this mocking, sarcastic inscription. This is the king of the Jews. In fact, their their scoffing and their mocking was hugely ironic. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. Of course Jesus could have saved himself. He is the Christ of God. He is the king. But he chose not to save himself. He chose to sacrifice himself. So as we saw in Isaiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our sin, our garbage, our rubbish was placed upon Christ. And the only innocent man who ever lived, who never sinned, the Son of God, died in my place. At the heart of the Easter message is the swap. There's a swap. He didn't save himself. No, he sacrificed himself. Ironically, have a look again, verse 35. Their taunting, their mocking actually gets to the heart of the gospel, the heart of the Easter message. Jesus is the Christ of God, and it is precisely by not saving himself that he saves others. That's the irony. John Stott put it so well. He said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's the essence of sin. At the heart of sin is us trying to be God, us trying to be king, us trying to be Lord of our own lives. And the reason we have conflict and the reason we fight is because you think you're God and I think I'm God and who's actually right? The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, but the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's what we have happening here. That's what we have happening in Isaiah 53. It's the swap. It's the substitute. In August 2006, Corporal Brian Budd, 29 years old, his wife was pregnant with his second child, was cut down by a hail of Taliban bullets in Afghanistan. He was leading a group of seven UK soldiers, and the enemy was blasting away with the AK-47s, One got a bullet in his shoulder, another got shot in the face. And to quote one of the soldiers, I quote, he said, it was mayhem. That's when Brian made his move. He decided it was his responsibility to destroy the threat because they were cutting us to pieces. He got up and rushed through the field towards the Taliban, guns blazing. His rifle was in full automatic mode, but that was the last we heard of him. All contact with him was lost. Immediately, the enemy fire lessened, and we were able to withdraw to safety. His body was later found amongst a number of dead Taliban. His company recommended him to be awarded the Victoria Cross. Now, in many ways, that's a picture of what Christ has done here. He's died in our place. He's taken the hail of bullets. He's taken the fire that we deserve so that we can be saved. Grace is a gift. 
Royden talked about that when he was talking about baptism. It's a gift from God, but someone had to pay for it. It's free for us, but it's not free. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. In a small way, that's what Brian Budd did for his, for his buddy soldiers. But of course, if you look at this passage and the negative response here to Jesus, nothing has really changed over 2,000 years, has it? People still hate Jesus. Not that many in our culture, our country, but it's growing, isn't it? And certainly within our Western world, it's becoming massive. I've seen a couple of books. Sam Harris wrote a book called The End of Faith. Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. That's how many people think about Christianity. Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. You know as well as I do that there's a Christophobia in our, especially our Western world. People hate Christ. They hate the gospel. You know as well as I do that when you start talking about Christian truth, like truth about LGBT or transgender, it is called hate speech. We are seen as being a danger to society. Nothing much has changed, has it? That was their response to Jesus, and that's the response of many people to Jesus today. I think it's unlikely that there's any one of those here this morning, or perhaps you are here because your, your husband or wife twisted your arm and you had no choice. But I think in our culture, the problem is there are many people who claim to belong to Jesus, but they don't really. They keep him at a distance. Don't get too close. Don't get too personal. Yes, I'm a Christian, meaning I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a bad person. No, I'm a Christian, but don't get too close. My dear friend, that's no different from a negative response. One of our, one of our members here at church, Peter Moore, he was interviewing someone. He told me about it. He was interviewing someone for a job. And he asked the guy, I thought it was a great question. He asked the guy, are you honest? And the guy said, well, he hesitated because you don't normally ask that question in an interview. He hesitated. He said, yes, I am honest, but I'm not a fanatic. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we know what that means. Perhaps I ask you, are you a Christian? And you say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a fanatic. Chances are you're not a Christian. Your response has been negative. If you are a Christian, you will say, I love him because of what he did for me, but I really don't get it right every day. That's your response. What is your response to Jesus? This Easter, you need to decide, where do I stand? As I've often, often told you before, you cannot sit on the fence because the fence belongs to Satan. You're either with him or against him. Let's have a look at the positive response. And we pick that up with, back to Luke 23, we pick that up with that second criminal, verse 42 and 43. What you need to know, let me read it, 42 and 43, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today. So there's no purgatory 
no karma, it's no reincarnation. No, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, for many of us, those are wonderful words, just wonderful, uh, because we're so conscious of our own brokenness and our own sinfulness, and it's just so encouraging that there's grace for someone like this. But for many people in Christendom, it's actually most offensive that Jesus should say this to this man. Remember, if you were crucified, you were not crucified. You were either a traitor or a criminal or an enemy or a murderer. You were not crucified because you bunked Sunday school. Okay? You were there for a good reason. And now when you have a look at this, here you have a man who's lived an evil life. That's his life. Perhaps he's been on the most wanted list of the hawks. Perhaps he's been in, he spent five years in the maximum security cell at Pretoria Central. And now, right at the end of his life, before taking his last gasp, he turns to Jesus and Jesus says to him, you will be with me in paradise. Truly I say to you, today you will be in paradise. And many people say, but that's not fair. I mean, that's not fair. His last gasp, he calls on Jesus. And Jesus forgives him. Surely that can't be right. Surely that's offensive. A Christian chaplain in the Mays prison in Northern Ireland, he saw many Irish terrorists who planted bombs. He shared the gospel with them, and many came to faith in Christ. And grew in their faith. But do you know what? He received death threats. And murder threats. For sharing the gospel with Irish terrorists. He said, people can't stand the thought that even men like that can be forgiven. Now here's a question. I'm going to offend you all equally. This is an equal equal opportunity church. I'm going to offend you all equally. What would you think if grace was offered to P.W. Boerter, to John Foster, to the Gupta brothers, to Jeffrey Epstein, what, was, what would you think if grace was offered to Tarbo Bester, the Facebook rapist? You see why this is offensive? You see, we find it offensive because we think, well then, perhaps, Martin, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to live my life, life as I like. I'll do as I like, I'll sin as I like, eat, drink, and be merry, and then just before I die, then just like this guy in the Bible, Martin, I'm going to call on God and he will forgive me so I can do as I like. It's in the Bible. My dear friends, God will be there But you may not call on him because you may not believe in him. You see, as you turn against God, your heart gets hardened and hardened and harder, just like Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And there comes a point where God is there if you call on him, but you no longer want to call on him because you do not believe in him. My dear friends, if fairness or justice was the basis upon which God would give us grace, well, we all damned. 
every one of you and me, we're all damned, we're all sunk, if justice was what was needed. You see, we kind of, we kind of think of the human race spread along a long line, that on the one end, there are the good people, the great people, the missionaries, the pastors, Mother Teresa, all over there, and they're all going to get to heaven, of course, automatically. And here on the other hand, here are all the bad people. Here's the Tabo Bester and the, and the Jeffrey Epstein. And somewhere in the middle there, somewhere there, is a cutoff point where those good enough will be accepted by God. That's how many people think in Christendom, perhaps even here this morning. And the Bible says that's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. God will never accept you on the basis of your goodness because you and I will never be good enough. Think about it. Like, think about it. Have you been honest and true to your conscience? We're not talking about the word of God. We're not talking about the law of God. No, we're talking just about your conscience. Have you been true to your conscience? answer is no. There's some things we are most ashamed about. Have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength every minute of every day? Forget it. I love myself too much and too often. Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? No. So on what basis do you think you will be good enough? You see, we are silenced, not because we fail, but, but, but because we realize you actually got to be perfect. And boy, do I fail. Remember that story of a rather crusty-looking old lady went to have her picture taken at a studio, and she fussed over her dress, her hair, her makeup. She fussed over the lights, over the angle of the photograph. And then when she finally settled down, she glared at the photographer and said, Young man, I hope you'll do me justice. And exasperated, he said, Madam, you don't need justice, you need mercy. At matric time, we have kids in our school writing matric, and they're normally gathered around the tables here and there, and they're all furiously looking at their notes just before the matric exam. I often go up to them and say, can I pray for you? They say, yes, there's not a single atheist just before a matric exam. <laughs> please pray for me, please. Father, pray for me, Father. I say, I say, must I pray for justice or mercy? <laughs> well, you can imagine... They all say mercy. Well, my dear friends, that's what we need from God. We don't need justice. We're damned. We need mercy. And that's why Christ came. He came for sinners like this criminal. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, let me close. Having, having a relationship with God, it's very important that you understand this. Having a relationship with God is not automatic. You need to understand that. You are not a Christian because you were born in a Christian family or you went to a Christian school or you belong to a Christian church. You're not a Christian because you're a member of this church. You're not a Christian because you come to communion, because you read your Bible. You're not a Christian if, if you're nice to Royden the rector. No. You need to take a step. You need to cross a line. And that's what this criminal did. So have a look at the three things he did. It's extraordinary what he did. 
Look at the three things he did. First of all, he recognized that I'm a sinner, I'm a failure. Notice verse 40 and 41, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So what does he do? He recognizes I'm a sinner, I'm a failure. I deserve this. My dear friends, the first step in becoming a Christian is not being self-righteous. It's not being religious. It's not thinking you are good enough for God. No, the first step in becoming a Christian is recognizing I'm a spiritual failure. I'm a spiritual fraud. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. So that's the first step. He recognizes his brokenness. Secondly, he recognizes that Jesus is king. Did you notice that, verse 42? And he said, "Remember, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He could only say that if he recognized that Jesus was a king. He could only say that if he recognized that Jesus would die and Jesus would be raised from the dead and enter his kingdom. And thirdly, he called on Jesus to remember him. Jesus, remember me. Meaning, remember me with grace. Remember me with favor. Remember me with forgiveness. And Jesus does. I mean, that is extraordinary. Truly, I say to you, today, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter how long it is, doesn't matter how deep it is, today, you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because he cast his eyes on Jesus. Some of you know the author Rebecca Pippet. She wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. It's a brilliant book, and she's a brilliant author. And in this book, it's quite a long quote here, but stay with me. She tells the story of speaking at a conference. And after one of her talks, this beautiful young lady wanted to speak to her. So they went into one of the private rooms and where this young lady wept as she told Becky her story. And she said years before, she and her fiancé, to whom she was now married, worked as youth workers in a large church. They were well-known, they, they had a wonderful impact on the young people, and everyone looked up to them, everyone admired them. A few months before they got married, they started having sex. They struggled with the guilt, with the hypocrisy, and then they discovered that she was pregnant. And then the young lady said, and I quote, you can't imagine how impossible it felt to admit to the church to confess that we were preaching one thing and living another. We couldn't bear the humiliation, and so I had an abortion. My, my wedding day was the worst day of my life. Everyone smiling at this innocent bride and me thinking, you're a murderer. You, you were so proud you couldn't bear the shame, so you killed an innocent baby. She carried on. She said, I just can't believe that I could have done something so terrible, murdering an innocent life. How could I do it? I love my husband and four beautiful kids. I know God forgives, but I cannot, cannot forgive myself. I've confessed a thousand times and still feel such shame and sorrow. And then Becky Pippet took a deep breath and she said to her, I don't know why you're so, so, so surprised. 
This isn't the first time your sin has led to an innocent death, but the second. When you look at the cross, we are all crucifiers, religious and non-religious, good or bad, aborters or non-aborters. All of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent man who ever lived. We all sent him there. Luther said we all carry his nails in our pockets. You are responsible. So imagine her saying to this weeping young lady, you are responsible for the death of Jesus. You've already done something worse than having an abortion. And God forgave you for that. If he's willing to forgive you for killing his son, don't you think he's able to forgive you of anything else? It's extraordinary, isn't it? But that is the gospel. That is the gospel of grace. And you may be sitting here this morning or listening on the website and saying, I have this shame. Perhaps you've had an abortion. Perhaps you've caused an abortion. I have the shame that I can't get rid of. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What is the qualification for rest? You need to be weary and heavy laden. Weary and heavy laden with your sin, with your shame, with your guilt. And he promises, come to me and I will give you rest. So what was true for that young lady is true for us today. What was true for the criminal on the cross is true for us today. This grace is not for good people. This is, grace is not for righteous people. This, this grace is not for religious people. This grace is for broken people. This grace is for hypocritical people. People like you and me. That's why he came. The question is, will you take the step? Will you cross the line? Let's pray. Perhaps this morning as we've been singing and praying and sitting under the authority of God's word, God the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you. And he's been pressing in upon your heart. Wouldn't today be a good day to come to him, weary and heavy laden with your sin, with your shame, with your guilt, and he offers you rest. And all you have to do is come to him. All you have to do is call on him for mercy. Why not today? Oh, Lord, will you have mercy on me? Will you cleanse me? Will you wash me? Will you make me a Christian? And we thank you, Lord, that when we call upon you for mercy, that you hear and you answer. Lord, as we go into this week, help us to serve you, help, help us to live for you, help us to love you. And will you use us and work through us as a church and individually? And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.